This is the Deep Exile Podcast. Dude. Just for a second, it went over there, man. Maybe I'm it's the actual phones. There's, there's a problem with my cans. Yes. As they say in the biz. His cans are malfunctioning. Yeah, so you go. Okay, ready? Here we go. You start it. It is September 2007, and this is the Deep Exile podcast number four. I am David Helpling, and I'm here with... John Jenkins. So here we are back at podcast number four. I'm sure you're listening to these in series. As you know, podcasts two and three were actually the Spotted Peccary podcast 19A and 19B, where you all called in these amazing questions, and we talked about that stuff on the podcast. Um, that was really cool. That was awesome. And thanks again to everybody who called in. We really appreciate that. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed it too. Um, we're going to keep that phone line open in the future. So anytime you want to call in with a question or a comment, feel free to go ahead. It's 858-926-5770. Yeah. Any questions at all? Anything you want to tell us? You want to comment on something? Give us a call. You might end up on the podcast. You never know. So here we are back from doing some stuff. Where were we? Well, we were here. We just weren't recording the podcast. What kind of stuff have we been doing, John? Well, we've been we've both been busy with a lot of different things, some different projects happening, some of which has been promotion for Treasure. Yes. We have done several radio interviews. One of the interviews in particular yielded some interesting stuff that we've never talked about and definitely never put on the air on any of the podcasts. That's right. We did a very in-depth three hour long interview a live radio interview for three hours yeah on the phone i thought that was pretty cool the fact that someone will take the time to talk to us and play our entire record for three hours in in the era of short attention span for someone to do that blows my mind that was very cool that's really awesome so we're going to play that interview on today's podcast the interview with Mary Bartline. Her show is on WMSE Milwaukee every Saturday, and the show is called Instrumental Saturdays. It was a great interview. A lot of the stuff you've already heard before, so we've taken this three-hour epic interview. We've cut out some of the music, and we've cut out some of the content that you've already heard, things that you already know, and uh, just gotten to the the juicy bits. The juicy bits. Yes, um, Mary was amazing and asked us some questions that no one else has. So to be able to share that on this podcast, I think should be pretty cool. So here it is. Enjoy. That's the music of John Jenkins and David Helpling on WMSC from the CD Treasure. It's a brand new CD from Spotted Peccary. I've been playing it for a couple weeks now, and um, so my audience is familiar with it. And tonight I have the pleasure of speaking with John Jenkins and David Helpling, and they're calling from San Diego, California. Are you guys there? Oh, John. Oh, wait. Okay, maybe that's... Hey, John. Okay, there you are. Hi. Okay. <laughs> um, and we got John and David, correct? Hello, yes. Hi. Yes. Now, where are you guys uh, calling from? San Diego, California. Yes, but from your studio, David? Yes, my okay. studio. Excellent. Um, well, David, m- uh, most of my listeners are, are pretty familiar with um, Spotted Peccary Records and the music of both of you, John and David, um, but we don't know much about your history or where where you guys came from. Where did you grow up? Myself? Yeah, both of you. I'm native. I grew up here in San Diego. I was born in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And John? 
I am uh, sort of a nomad. <laughs> I, um, I, I lived in Michigan till I was 15, and huh. then I moved to San Diego and have been here ever since. Wow. And what brought you to San Diego? Um, my father was here, and um, so I came out here to live with him. Mm-hmm. And so when you guys were young kids, well, actually, when did you guys meet? What year was it? 95? Yeah, I think around 95. 95. So Green and Blue came out in 96, and I think we met because John here um, is part of the Spotted Peckery record label. So mm-hmm. he was one of the people I met when I was being signed. Yeah, actually, it's an interesting story because um, one of one of my partners in the label, Howard Givens, um, we were looking for some furniture for the studio, mm-hmm. um, a piece of uh, gear that we could put some equipment in. And so we went down to the store called New World. Was it New World? Yeah, New World Music and Sound. New World Music and Sound. And, and this very nice gentleman named David Helpling um, helped us while we were there because he was working at the store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my job. <laughs> <laughs> so we bought a piece of equipment from him, and then not long after that, he uh, contacted us and told us that he had an album between Green and Blue that he wanted to release. Huh. Yeah, it was pretty coincidental. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. But um, when, when you guys were younger, when did you first start playing music? I have always been into music since I was a little, very small child. My mother was a music teacher while I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And she would teach music in elementary schools. So she was always playing the piano, and we always had music around. Um, so it's kind of always been there for me. And what was the first instrument you played? Um, well, I'd have to say I, I, the first instrument I played was violin, actually. I took violin lessons. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, um, when I was probably five, six years old. Uh, I, I don't know how to play the violin now, but... I, <laughs> I was going to say, that's news to me. That's great. Yeah. The violin. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, violin, and then, of course, the piano, which was around the house. I would sit down, and I did take lessons on piano, and but none of that ever stuck. Mm-hmm. I played trumpet. Starting in fifth grade, I played trumpet, and then all through middle school and high school, I played trumpet and then some drums, mm-hmm. school bands and stuff. And from that point on, um, pretty much just focused on uh, synthesizers and, and keyboards. Mm-hmm. And what what uh, what got you with all of these organic instruments that you played? What got you interested in synthesizers? Um, I was very lucky in that the music department for the school where my parents worked um, they had brought in some electronic equipment. So uh, my mom, being a music teacher, got a chance to bring some of this stuff home to kind of learn it. So she brought home a mini Moog and a Fender Rhodes. <sighs> all this cool gear that I would sit down when she wasn't on it. I was playing with it and learning, learning how the stuff worked. And, um, I, I also remember the, the, the one song that I heard that made me want to get into electronic synthesizers was, um, Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter group. Oh yeah. There's that whole middle section where it breaks down into this really weird electronic part. And I, I was just awed by that. Excellent. Okay, so then, um, so so you decided this was your your way to go with synthesizers. Yeah, and yeah, just the more unique sounds that you you know didn't really hear at the time. Mm-hmm. And David, your your background's a little bit different. 
Mine's quite a bit different. Mm-hmm. I think John has quite a jump on me there. <laughs> I, I never received any formal training on any instrument. Um, my, neither of my parents were played any instruments or into music other than general listening. Um, my sister got piano lessons, and she hated them, so they didn't even try with me. <gasps> so I sort of secretly wanted the piano lessons. Um, I would always noodle on the piano we had in the house, and it was always... I was interested in it, but I never really took it very seriously. And then in 1980, I was in sixth grade, and U2's first album came out and sort of blew my mind. And I decided that I need to play guitar, because if if you can make a guitar sound like that, Mm -hmm. that's what I want to do. That's really one of the things that launched me into wanting to play an instrument and be... Uh, a guy that makes music, you know. And so what was um, sort of your first steps when um, clearly, John, you know, you were discovering the synthesizer and how did you meet Howard? How did you come to begin Spotted Peccary? Well, actually, Spotted Peccary was going before I met Howard. Um, He had started Spotted Peccary um, in Tucson a few years before I actually met him. The way I met Howard was um, I was working with Paul Lackey, who my first album is a collaboration with him, Continuum. Mm -hmm. He and I were working at the San Diego Supercomputer Center on the campus of uh, UCSD. And this is where they had the big cray. It's one of the four sites where the Internet was born, actually. Sure. And uh, we were working there, and Paul and I, we ran the audio department, there were a lot of scientists that did research there, and they would want to produce videos to, you know, show the academic community about the science that they were doing. So Paul and I did the audio production. We composed the music for these videos, and we started out there as interns. And at one point, Howard came in to get a tour of the facility, and mm. that's how we met Howard. And how long after that did um, did you join Spotted Peccary? I, I, I think that was probably 1993 and the first music that I did on the label was 1994 mm-hmm. so it, it didn't take very long Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of rare to find someone who's doing this kind of music to the level that you appreciate right. so I think Howard and I both realized and recognized that you know we really needed to be doing stuff together mm-hmm. and it's wild that you'd be sort of so close to each other in that respect that um, you know that, that you guys would run into each other like that yeah now fate. yeah exactly now um, David now Paul I should go back to you this is going to be kind of hard talking to both of you but <laughs> <laughs> but I can do it um, back to you John uh, did you have any compositions in the can before you sort of went to Howard to say I want to put out a CD um, and Paul yeah, Paul and I had, uh, you know, working together in the in the audio lab there of the supercomputer, we had quite a few things that had been started, and I think a few of those ideas actually developed and ended up on Continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we had been working in that direction before we met Howard, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so David, um, as you were discovering the guitar and saying, well, I better, you know, I'm going to become a guitar player, <laughs> how did you um, how did you start out with that? Well, like I said, I was in sixth grade, and I was very naive, and I, I'm sort of a, I was and still am a pretty geeky 
guy, you know, not into the sports and all that mm-hmm. stuff, and um, mostly daydreaming about the strange science fiction things or what have you. <laughs> so I, I went out and bought a guitar at a pawn shop. It had four strings on it. It needed six. I didn't know that, and I bought an amplifier, and I just started playing it. Um, and it's sort of become the formula for everything I do in my career is I find something I want to do, and I start doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do well going and being taught something. It's best for me to just discover it and sort of make my own impressions and approach. Mm-hmm. So I started playing guitar a lot, and I had built up um, what in those days was considered a pretty serious rig of equipment for oh. doing guitar, <laughs> like this small refrigerator of devices <laughs> that made my guitar sound um, like an orchestra or like a synthesizer and I I started doing the delay thing and the looping thing and just really more interested in textures and sounds than the rock and roll route, which mm-hmm. I sort of assume a lot of people go to when they pick up a guitar. They they go straight to rock, and I went straight to space. Because mm-hmm. um, this was also around the time um, MIDI first came out, isn't it? Yeah, I think MIDI hit in like 84. Mm-hmm. It was a big thing, and... Uh, that's funny because right after I graduated high school, um, it was either I was going to go to college and become a marine biologist <laughs> because I was president of the biology club and very geeked out, or I was going to do music. And my parents were horrified when I said, you know what, I'm not going to college. I'm just going to get a job and buy a bunch of gear and make music. Wow. Horrified. And um, so anyway, the the couple of years after high school, I, I started buying MIDI gear mm-hmm. and I bought my first sampler and a keyboard and I started composing things um, to be complete. You know, I was the drummer, I was the bass player. Yeah. And I was doing keyboards and guitar and it was so great. It's kind of silly. I worked so hard to make these sounds with my guitar that if if I would have met the right person they would have said, hey, you can just buy this keyboard and make that sound with one finger. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's kind of funny that I went this really backwards route and had this pretty deep background in textural guitar work and then discovered synthesizers in the very early 90s and um, started composing music for television commercials and promo videos. Mm -hmm. But now didn't that background though sort of give you a better uh, understanding of how to play the keyboards to sound like a guitar? Yeah, yeah, and and, but it's one of those things once you once you find that first love and my first love was uh, textural guitar, ambient guitar, whatever you call it when you take guitar and and marry it with processing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm to the point now where I can't pick up a guitar that isn't going through the processing and impress anybody or do anything that I feel is emotionally moving. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a... It's something that, that I've always held on to and I always go back to. Mm-hmm. But to answer the question, I don't know if it gave me a lot of understanding on how to play the keyboard... You know, it was so amazing to just press one key and hear this amazing sound. Yeah, you but it, but you have to utilize the sounds in the appropriate way. Yeah, and it was when I, in 1995, I had um, started mixing the two together. I was like, I want to make music with all these amazing keyboards and these ethnic percussion sounds and my guitar and put it all together and synchronize the delays with the guitar rhythmically to the music 
So I started making this weird kind of music that nobody understood. And all my friends said, oh, that was interesting. <laughs> or that's kind of cool. But all of that music turned out to be between green and blue, which mm -hmm. is me taking my guitars and, and some synthesizers and putting them together and writing songs that I thought were cool. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a pretty sophisticated sound for your first album. I was pretty floored by it. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, there's a, a little bit of a story there. I released it myself. I made a thousand copies of between green and blue and i just gave it away sort of as a business card i had no intention to sell it mm -hmm. and like john said i was working at this music store selling synthesizers and keyboards and helping people build recording studios so i had built up some of that technical stuff musically and um things just took off from there i, I don't you know i don't remember how spotted peccary found out that i had created a record there was a guy what was his name john Corey. Corey Roth. Yeah. This, this really great customer of mine took the CD that I gave him and had the foresight to, to think that the Spotted Peccary guys would be interested in it. Huh. So he got it to Howard and the gang, and I, I think I got a call from Howard um, saying, hey, you know, I was in there into your store whenever, and I heard your CD, and we want to talk to you about it. So that's when I realized that, oh, my goodness, there are people on this planet that like the kind of music that I make. No way. You know, because I, I, I didn't really meet any of those people until Spotted Peckery. <laughs> so you know, you, I, I probably was surrounding myself with the pop crowd. I don't know. but So uh, you weren't actually um, listening to other artists like yourself? No, that, and that's a, big, that's a big thing that'll probably come up, is that I never listened to electronic or ambient or spacey music until I was in the pond and I was starting to learn who my peers were. Uh -huh. um, I did listen to some stuff like Patrick O'Hearn and Tangerine Dream, but it was sort of like people gave a friend of mine, Steve, who's a good friend of John's as well, turned me on to Patrick O'Hearn and I really liked some of that stuff, but mm -hmm. I didn't really immerse myself in it. I was just sort of, oh, that's cool. I, I didn't spend much time listening to music. Mm -hmm. I was just making it. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of making it for a living around the time that the thing happened with Spotted Peccary. So at the end of the day, after making music for somebody's video, um, I didn't want to sit and listen to. Yeah. I wanted to watch a alien movie. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I answered your question. <laughs> More or less. Um, okay, so um, back to you, John. Um, here you are at Spotted Peccary, and you have put out your very first album with Paul Lackey, and that was in 95. And actually, it was a year later that David put out his CD in 96. Um, how did you... Because uh, the other thing about, you know, you guys that I find... I'm uh, surprised by a little bit, is your next album, John, wasn't until 1998. And what was that about? Good, I'm not the only one. <laughs> well, David, <laughs> let's see. You went from 96 no, to no, no, no. 99. So let's what? go back to John. Let's <laughs> say that I'm not the only guy that waits six or seven years between releases. Yeah. Well, 95 to 98 is not that long. No, but still. I mean, some people crank out CDs a year. Um, yeah, I mean, we did... We, we had done Tracks in Time, which we produced, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a sampler. 
but it wasn't really a sampler because it was all unreleased material. And we had a, Paul and I had a couple of tracks on that, and then right on the heels of that, we put out Continuum, I believe. And I, I don't know. I think it just I got involved with the label mm-hmm. and uh, doing the business side of things, and you know maybe that kind of got in the way of you know immediately coming out with a new record. Yeah. I mean, Continuum was the first real record I had ever done, and it was a lot of work. Well, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting that um, you know with Spotted Peccary because they you know they they did have the like the sampling like Tracks of Time. And stuff like that, but it seems uh, I could be wrong. But y- you know, David and John, you s- you seem to sort of um, set the pace, or could I be wrong? Um, John has to answer that one. Set the sound, or no, or did you fit into the sound of of Spotted Peccary? Well, I think the sound of Spotted Peccary just kind of evolved. Yeah, you know, as the artists put out material, I don't know that anyone kind of you know, sets the standard and others follow. I mm-hmm. think it's just, you know, people do what they do and and we try to, you know, encourage them to do their best work. But, yeah, you know, I don't know that anyone dictates what anyone else should sound like. Mm-hmm. Now, how did, how did you um, discover some of the technology that you used in, you know, for your music? Um... Well, again, working at the Supercomputer Center, we had access to all of the latest technology. I mm-hmm. think we were the first people in San Diego to have a Pro Tool system. Mm. Um, and before that, we had a Studer Diaxis hard disk recording system, and we had early versions of Performer, which later became Digital Performer, mm-hmm. soft sequencing software. So, again, it's through the, the academic side of things that I got access to that stuff. Huh. Well, for me, it was working at the uh, the music store, and my job was to know all these synthesizers inside and out so I can sell them to people, mm-hmm. and my job was designing recording studios for people, so I was automatically exposed to all of this stuff, and some of it was, you know, sort of like whatever, but the, a couple instruments and things really struck me as like, wow, I've got to get one of those, and so I spent most of my money at the store I worked at. Oh, I bet. And just bought a bunch of keyboards and, you know, from between Green and Blue up to the second record, I really got deep into that stuff and had fun exploring all the technologies and the things that spoke to me. Because mm-hmm. I, I still feel that whether it's an acoustic guitar or some handcrafted instrument, a certain synthesizer can really speak to an artist and really help him find his voice and help you create sounds that are the sounds you've always imagined you wanted to have in your music, you know? Mm-hmm. So, that's how I, you know, discovered a lot of that technology. Yeah. Now, uh, a lot, with a lot of the Spotted Peccary albums, too, the artists tend to work with each other. And, um, because, well, John, actually, um, Flow was uh, your solo album, but Continuum was with Paul Lackey. And then um, you did Beyond City Light, which was also um, a solo. But the other artists tend to, like Greg Clamped and stuff like that, tend to work with each other. And is uh, why is that particularly? Well, and back in the in the mid '90s, in the late mid to late '90s, we just had uh, kind of an atmosphere where there was a studio and 
you know, we had it in the house, and people would come and go, and there were always artists hanging out there, and, you know, it just kind of fostered that kind of collaborative um, spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, people would just be working on something, and, you know, maybe another artist would wander in and say, oh, that's cool, what is that? And, you know, next thing you know, they're working on something together. Yeah, the Spotted Peccary studio and the the place where Spotted Peccary was was a really inspiring place to hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you instantly found kindred artists or people that had similar interests, you know, and, and I think that played a heavy part in my my future development because I met some people there that turned me on to some music that I'd never heard before. Mm-hmm. After Spotted Peccary released Between Green and Blue, Howard Gibbons, who's sort of the president guy, mm-hmm. sort of the main guy, and it, it, he's actually a really amazing person and just amazing to talk to, but he sat me down. He said, okay, I want you to listen to this record, and he, he sat me in the studio in front of the console. He put on this record. He closed the door, and I listened to the whole thing, and it was a Steve Roach. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this music? Because, like we, we tapped on earlier, I had never listened to ambient electronic music and never really understood what it was until I was I had this record out and people were starting to compare me to people that I'd never heard before. So the, the Spotted Peccary environment was really, really creative, open, and positive one mm-hmm. and encouraged me to... Uh, experiment and do all kinds of music I wanted to. So yeah. It's no wonder that the artists collaborate with each other yeah. when you're hanging out in an environment like that. And even, you know, even for that matter, the artwork a lot of times is attributed to one of the musical artists as well. You mean Greg? Well, yeah, I guess it's, is Greg mostly the artist involved, but... Yeah, I mean, during that period, um, again, probably up until five years ago or so, Greg was the art director for the label mm-hmm. and he you know would would definitely kind of guide and if not completely do all the all the covers for the label so we had kind of a unique and special look that also gained a lot of recognition right but right I, you know it's, i think it's it's worth mentioning that howard himself is an accomplished photographer and an amazing um i, I don't know what you call it, it's a digital artist when he he composites things and puts album covers together that are amazing mm-hmm. yeah, wherever that's called but howard is really into that stuff yeah and um you, you know and that's another thing where you have people working together just like artists collaborated on music i remember howard collaborating with greg and they would come up with these mind-blowing album covers and album art so. mm-hmm. Yeah, they were cool. they were all really beautiful. I do yeah, like. I think we, at, at times we were almost more well known for the covers than for the music to a lot of people. Yeah, is they, that good or bad? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> um, well, I think it's good. I mean, it really set the sort of the pace for the label. You could spot a, pot, a spotted peccary uh, CD anywhere. Yeah, you know. And then a couple times, like I, I would see one that looked like a spotted peccary label, and it wasn't. So people were copying you. <laughs> You know, it was definitely, um, you know, I think uh, you started a trend in that. Especially, I really like the Sleeping on the Edge of the World and Flow. Those two covers are really nice. Oh, thanks. Flow reminds me of, looks like a retina. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, that's a composite. I had um, I'd done some searches on the internet for um, pictures from outer space of, like, rivers. Oh, yeah. So, it's uh, I came up with four or five of these different space images of you know rivers on earth and i gave those to greg and i said 
see what you can come up with here with, with these. Mm-hmm. And that's what he came up with, and it, it looks really good. I love that's, that record. I yeah. think flow looks and sounds so cool. It's so homogenous and pure, mm-hmm. and the artwork reflects that, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so for a song like Grand Collision, how long does it take you to to create that piece of music? How much tweaking time did you take? Creating is quick. Tweaking is long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't recall. The, the way we worked on this album was we would work on a song until it got to the point where we needed to step away from it mm-hmm. because we had listened to it too much and were too close to it. And we sort of skipped around and we'd go to tracks. That we'd sort of follow our bliss. You know, we'd like, what are we excited about today? Let, oh, let's open that song and, and work on that. Um, so it wasn't like we sat down, we start a song, and we finish it. Mm-hmm. The whole thing was created more as a record. Um, so I don't, I don't have any concept of maybe how many hours or days mm-hmm. or weeks went into a song. That is one of the ones that we started um, back during the Fall Summit sessions. Um, I remember uh, we worked on it probably for a couple of days, and then... I think we put it away for six years. Yep. <laughs> oh my gosh! But it didn't. It doesn't. Didn't sound like it does on Treasure. I mean, we, you know, when we got serious about getting Treasure out and we opened up those those sessions, mm-hmm. you know, we took what was there, and obviously, in six months, things change in a person, and in six years, things change a lot. So I think we listened to them with very new ears mm-hmm. and got really excited about it and gave it the treatment of whatever we were both really interested in at the time. So it, it sort of got dressed in our current influence. You know? mm-hmm. when, when you start to create a song, do you start... I mean, your, your songs are very visual, very, you know, they really do take you on a journey. Do you start with an, uh, a vision, a concept, or a sound? I think it's usually a sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think John and I are, at least me, I'm always trying to express myself through music as like a frustrated filmmaker. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't make films. I'm not an animator. And I think John and I really try hard to say something without words. Thus, things come out being labeled as cinematic mm-hmm. or visual. Um, but things usually start with a sound, and then we sort of attach some kind of personality to what has been started, and then we chase it down. I don't know. John probably has a better answer. What would you say? That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, it's it, it's probably different in every case. I mean, it can start with a sound. It can start with, you know, a four-note theme mm-hmm. that is, you know, saying something interesting that you want to develop a bit. Um it can start with just a mood. Like, I want to create something that sounds like this certain mood. I remember, and I think it's Grand Collision. Please correct me, John, because I messed things up. But we were sitting in the studio in 2000, and there was the synthesizer, and I put my hand down and hit this little cluster of notes, and I thought it was sort of a mess. And you said, wait, wait, wait a minute, like mm-hmm. you always do. And that is that one low chord sound. But that was just how a lot of things happen. We surround ourselves with these instruments. 
mm-hmm. and you put your hands on them. Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. When you're working, it, it's different when you're collaborating because you get that instant feedback. Like David just said, he could do something that he doesn't think is anything, but I'll hear it in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, wait a minute, record that now. I, I would have never played that chord again. <laughs> wow. And he, he, heard, he heard it in a different way. You know, you, when you hear music, you attach other accompaniment to it. Everybody does. But yeah. He, he heard it in a different voice. And as soon as he played this other chord against it, this other music against it, I was like, oh, wow, that is interesting. Huh. And it would work the other way. You know, a lot of times I would be noodling and David would say, oh, wait, what's that thing you just did? And Yeah, I, I will say for the first time, we've never said this, I don't want to get too deep into details, but on the keyboard, I like the black keys. Uh-huh. <laughs> and John likes the white keys. Okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, if you go back to my first two records, it's in E flat minor, A flat minor, C minor, or G minor. Okay. And John's stuff is all on the white keys. So when he plays something, I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. <laughs> because there's something about register and key in music that keys totally different emotions in me, and I assume everyone else still likes music. Right. But when he plays things, I find them wondrous and fascinating. You know, but if we're going to take that same thing and slide it up a half step to the black keys, it sounds more familiar and mm-hmm. less interesting to me. Huh. So I think we feed off of each other that way. Exactly. So I'll play a chord that I think is somewhat pedestrian in my world is really interesting to him and vice versa. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're lucky it worked out that way, I guess. Yeah. Now, how do you um, how do you build a song? Who who starts it? Did did you kind of like go back and forth? Like, you know, one of you start one, and then somebody starts the next one. It's like two guys creating a painting. And someone starts by brushing their elbow against the painting and making a red mark. Uh-huh. And the other guy's like, hey, let's put some blue over here. And I'm like, well, now that I see that, but let's take this purple and put this big line underneath it. Mm-hmm. He's like, wait, let's throw this green thing over there. And we just start. It's, there, we don't even talk a lot of the times. We're just playing parts and we're going like mad scientists or something. <laughs> and then we either end up with a masterpiece mm-hmm. or something that should never be heard by any human being. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think what you're asking about is collaborating, and that's um, a lot of times in collaborations, people bring in material that they've worked on before the other people have heard it. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll bring in a song that's in progress. We didn't do that. We started everything from scratch, sitting at the keyboard and looking at the computer screen. And that's another thing, being in the same room, Mm -hmm. I know there's probably a lot of famous collaborations where people wrote music together but they were in one guy has a big studio in London and the other guy's in LA and they send stuff back and forth and this guy adds a part and that guy adds a part but that thing we just talked about about stumbling onto something that might have been looked over only happens when you're sitting next to someone and you instantly hear it Mm -hmm. so um, being in the same room is a, a, a very positive way to work yeah did you find that, or, or generally when you're creating a song, do you find that you add more to a song or subtract more from a song, the final product? That's a really good question. That's, that's loaded. <laughs> I can't answer that. I mean, I think this is, and John's going to have to correct me, but I think we usually end up with too much. Mm-hmm. And we will put a song away thinking it's amazing and we'll work on something else and we come back and we're like wow 
this song would be great if we'd only turn off like three sounds, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there were times where it, some of the subtractive process sort of distilled it down to its essence and made it what it is, and, and we sort of, we had, we had songs that really clicked by turning off a sound, mm-hmm. or by turning off a phrase or a layer that was somewhat integral to the to the music. Yeah. yeah, the general rule for me is less is more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, the, at least the way I work, is I throw a lot of stuff at a piece, and then I end up turning half of it off. And a lot of times the thing I turn off is the thing I was most attached to. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, when you turn that one thing off, it just opens up and becomes perfect. Hmm. So I would definitely say that there was a lot of that type of work, that, or that process was happening when we were working on Treasure. And we did have a much higher track count than I have had in anything previous. Because <laughs> oh. I was like, no, we need more sounds. Just try this and this and that. And uh, it was really interesting to be in this really free, just like, throw everything at it. Let's try this. That sounds great. And then, uh, like John said, there had been a, a part or a sound or an entire phrase that I was really attached to that spawned some song Mm -hmm. and we ended up doing all these parts and it turns out we turn off that original phrase that i thought was the foundation of the music and there lies this amazing song that i had no idea Hmm. was there and then you let that part go and you end up with some kind of third party thing that is slightly i don't want to be weird slightly divine you Mm -hmm. know because it's not like it's not like it was preconceived in your head Right. You know, you're listening to it as a cumulative voice, which is pretty awesome. Have, me, anyway. have you had those uh, sort of eureka moments where you sit back and listen to a song and go, oh my God, that worked? I, I have. John, have you had any of those? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, the track, uh, I think the first track you played, Beyond Words. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's a story. Go ahead. Was one of those. I mean, that track was, that's the last thing we did for this record. It wasn't even going to be on the record. Uh-huh. And uh, we sat down, and within 30 minutes, that track was done. Yep. I mean, David just played something, and I played something, and and that was it. Yeah. And that has very few sounds in it. The, yeah. The textures that are there are very rich, but it just happened. I mean, I, it seemed like I, I snapped my fingers and opened my eyes, and there's this song, and I'm like, where'd that come from? Yeah, and it, it was really great to listen to. Uh, Treasure is actually the second track to play, and um, there are, there are shared sounds on this CD that you'll hear in you know you'll hear l- just little sounds in in all of the the tracks. Like sometimes it's just the sound of a bell that that you hear, which makes the whole CD cohesive. And, um, but I, I really, and and I think these, the little bells that I hear in, in Treasure, you hear, uh, elsewhere in the, in the CD. Am I correct? Or am I making that up? (laughs) There's a lot of sounds that sort of are in our palette of our favorite instruments. Mm -hmm. Most of them we've created or recorded, um, that, that show themselves on, on different tracks. Yeah. On the album. So, in that sense, it's very cohesive mm-hmm. because no song is an island that I know of on this record. Right. Right. Yeah, that's correct. And, and beyond that, a lot of those sounds um, even spill over from our previous releases. You know, we, we each have a, our palette of sounds that we like to use. Sure. And have throughout, you know, since we've been doing music. That's mm-hmm. true. Um, if you listen to Sleeping on the Edge of the World, you'll hear 
some, you know, some sounds that are identical. Like yeah. some of my favorite sounds that actually made it to the final cut that I brought to the track. And the same thing with sounds from Flow or Beyond City Light. Mm-hmm. Sort of brought our our favorite or our condensed sort of top shelf sounds together to make the record. But then yeah. at the same time, we created all these new sounds that are unique to only us as a as a team. Right, right. So the, I think there's a a little bit of layering there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple weeks back, um, I featured, I did an hour of um, your solo albums and treasure. And the way my show uh, is produced, uh, I play uninterrupted hours of music. So I was able to create an an hour with uh, flow, continuum, uh, sleeping on the edge of the world, and between green and blue, and treasure. Wow! And it was and beyond city lights, and it was really a nice hour of music. It was really great. Wow, that's great. So well, you should go back and listen to it on the archive because it was really good. Wow. So, um, but that you know, it just shows how the two of you come together with the, the solo albums and come together with treasure it is really a nice uh, uh a nice pairing to be sure um so how'd you come up with the title track or the title even of the cd it's from the early days in mm-hmm. 2000 and that track probably more than any other i think correct me if I'm wrong, is pretty much unchanged from from when we worked on it back then. I think that is the only song on the record that sounds like its original creation. Wow. Um, every other track has had significant growth into something bigger and different, but the title track, pretty much what, what it was, with the exception of a couple percussion things, I think it's pretty much sound for sound. Yeah. The same kind of thing. Sounds at the end of that song, it sounds almost like you're spelunking. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Nice, nice one. <laughs> that, that's sort of what we were after, or at least how we thought it sounded by the time it was done. Uh-huh. And now, there's, there's, a, lot of, um, there's a lot of production on this CD. Uh, and we talked about how, you know, you can subtract and add and, and this and that. Um, but as far as the uh, production for, like, stereo panning, and that type of thing, um, because that's a, a sound that's there that you manipulate. So you've decided to to leave a sound in, but then you manipul- manipulate it. So how do you, um, where do you come up with those changes to the song? Well, some of those are sort of integral to the sound mm-hmm. that we're using as far as panning or or how wide their stereo image is or... If we take a guitar and put it on the left and have the delayed sound of the guitar on the right, mm-hmm. that sort of happens in the treatment of that sound. That's just how it's supposed to be. Um, I'm not sure if that's part of the question. Mm-hmm. John, do you have a better answer for that? Um, no, I mean, just as far as the the layout of the track, I mean, we just try to make it sound nice and wide and mm-hmm. make sure all the spaces are filled and in the right ways. Yeah. I will say that we we push the limits of our equipment as far as we can to try to achieve a sound that sounds real, mm-hmm. like life. It's big, it's deep, it has a three-dimensional quality to it. It's something hopefully you can step into mm-hmm. as opposed to just appreciate from a distance. And we, 
when it when it is in the mix phase and, and making those critical decisions, we really pushed it as far as we could mm-hmm. to get it to sound huger than huge. Yeah. Um, well, the third track that we have to play, because we do have ten tracks to get through, um, the third track is The Knowing. And I... I it's very has a very dreamy start to it, um, but I love the way this track builds. It just just builds to this beautiful uh, peak. I just love it. So, um, tell me a little bit about the knowing. Um, the knowing is um, yeah, it definitely builds and builds and keeps building. Yeah, when you think it's done building, it keeps building some more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just yeah. To me, it's a very visual song. I really say that this track really shows John's influence and John, what John brings to what I would normally do. Mm-hmm. This thing is just so textural and so... Um, it's hard to explain. It just sort of takes on a, a scale and a size um, that I don't think I've attempted before. Pretty exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah, well. I'd say it's probably one of my favorite tracks on the record. Yeah. It's... And it's had a long journey to get to where it is. Yes. I mean, it started back in 2000 also, I believe, as a very different kind of a piece. I think we had some kind of um, flute part in there. Yeah, it, it, was, it was mellow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of grew into this thing that actually kind of rocks a little bit. Yeah. And um, it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, I'm excited. John um, really pushed me on the guitar parts farther than I would go. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that because it's, it's just uh, it's a it's a little it's a little daring for this genre. I think I, I, no. was, I was a little unsure about it when we we're doing it, but he said, "Don't worry." Yeah, so, no, no, <laughs> not <laughs> so, at anyway, all. I, I like this track as well. Now, you said that sort of the birth of this album d- derived out of a movie soundtrack that you were asked to do. Um, how is creating? an album different from or is it different from creating a movie soundtrack where you have visuals that you have to sync up to oh it's totally different it's almost like the opposite instead of writing music for something that needs music we're writing music for i mean it it starts as nothing we're writing it for no particular purpose other than to write something that we are moved by Mm -hmm. we're writing the kind of music we want to listen to mm-hmm. which so is it comes from a very pure and spontaneous place and the music is very honest whereas to a movie you have pretty strict guidelines as to what is too dark what is too emotional what is too mm-hmm. striking what is too loud mm-hmm. so in our case it's um each each song is like chasing down a little dream and mm-hmm. we just do whatever we feel like doing so it's more like freedom is or film is not yeah. Is one easier than the other? I mean, is it easier to have constraints, constraints to say, well, it has to be like this, this, and that, or to say, hey, it's wide open? Uh, I guess having constraints is technically easier, but the music that you write is far less moving when listened to on its own. Uh-huh. You know, when you're writing music for a movie, as long as it's with the movie, you know, it's technically easier because you know what your boundaries are. Mm-hmm. But it seems, I, I don't want to belittle the, the, the craft, but it, it seems a little less artistic because you're already sort of in a box. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas when you sit down to write music just to express yourself, um, that's a, a much more artistic statement to me. Mm-hmm. It's a much more pure context. That's yeah. how I feel about it. Because, David, you did do a complete movie soundtrack, um, the the um, movie trade-offs. Yes, I have actually scored eight films. Okay. Um, my, my job now, and ever since the year 2000, is I am a full-time composer for um, television, movies, and corporate type of media. So that's my day job. Mm-hmm. But I, I put all that on hold um, right at the end of last year to really get into the treasure experience and mm-hmm. see how happening. And, um, John, why did it take seven years, more or less? You, you say a lot of these were derived in 2000? Yeah, we started this project in 2000. Um, you know, basically, we just got busy with other stuff. And in that time, I did Beyond City Light. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and then David was real busy with his business and family, and um, we just... We were always talking about finishing this record and never doing it, and finally the time was right, and we just said, you know what, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to set aside a block of time and make it happen, so we committed to that, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I really liked Beyond City Lights. Played that a lot. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, we collaborated a little bit on some of those tracks. David, yeah, that, that was fun. David yeah. played on a few of those tracks. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I did get to play some guitar parts and... And some little chimes or something on there. <laughs> yeah. Beyond City Light is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's another, you know, like, a, a sort of like treasure. It's a journey. It's a record that's a journey, and it's, it's, it's meant to be that way. Mm-hmm. I love that it is that way. Yeah. Which, yeah, which brings me to um, the sequence, song sequence on the, the album. That's very thoughtful, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the order of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're definitely in that order because that's the journey that we want to take you on. Mm-hmm. And I, I pretty much approach every project that way. Um, I'm I'm thinking about the sequence of the tracks while I'm still creating them. And there may be holes uh-huh. where I know that I need a track that oh. fits into this certain mood mm-hmm. to fill that spot in the sequence. But I'm always thinking about the project as a complete start-to-finish journey. Yeah, that, that is a new thing for me. So it's it's a great experience for me to be involved in a project where there is thought and care into the big picture at the song level. Mm-hmm. Where in the past, I would just go in and express myself and write all these songs and then take all the ones that make sense and stick them on a record. And a lot of them are about the same thing, but nothing as purposeful and intertwined as the, the songs are on this record. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty... It's in a pretty amazing journey if you really, if you have the time to sit and listen to it from beginning to end and just listen. Right. And not be um, doing something else at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the sound that starts the record and it's the sound that ends the record. Yeah. Um, some things start to become clear. Right. And I, and I was going to add that I, I think the a sign of a really good CD is one that when you listen straight on all the way through the last song leads you into wanting to hear the first song again. And that's what this album does. Great. So, you did that right, John. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I you. come from that, you know, I'm not to say I'm an old guy, but <laughs> I, come, uh-huh. I come from that time when we would listen to albums. Yes. You know, we would sit down and listen to an album from start to finish. You know, and to me, probably my 
number one album of all time is The Wall mm-hmm. by Pink Floyd. And, you know, and I was definitely into the whole concept album thing, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Well, yeah, see, the, to me, that was the ultimate, because that one led you all through a journey, and you just wanted to start all over again. Yeah, yeah, so that's, you know, I'm kind of coming from that perspective, so I, I maybe lean more that way when I'm creating as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, now, the the next track is Beyond Words, and uh, in the break, uh, David and John, I asked you... Um, that, David and John, by the way, are in San Diego. Um, but I asked you about the length of the song. It's only three minutes and 30 seconds, whereas the average length of the other songs is about seven minutes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is the shortest song, but it the, the way this whole album was written is we, we listen to the songs, and they sort of tell you what they want. Mm-hmm. And they tell you when they want to go on and when they want to make a left turn. And this song, it said it, 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 it was so pure, and it felt so complete and finished at that three minute, three and a half minute mark. Mm-hmm. We just let it be what, what it was doing best. I think if we tried to stretch it out, we would just be fluffing something up that had already been said. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right way to say that, John. Yeah, um, well, I think I mentioned earlier in the interview that w- this track was the last track that we did um, and it, it just happened. I mean, we sat down, and within, you know, 30 minutes, this track was done, and we knew at that point that it's it was this. Mm-hmm. To take it any further would be a mistake. Yeah. In um, my movie soundtrack of my mind, I half expected to hear uh, helicopter rotors coming in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. We'll put that in the remix. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, about the, 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 the other tracks, now, seven and eight sort of bleed together, and the, the rest of the tracks are, are pretty, are relatively long, like track six is ten minutes long. Um, when you were in the studio, uh, were you concerned about the length of the songs, or like, like with this last one, they take you as long as they need to go? It's like we said before, I mean, I feel like we're almost, we're sort of negligent. We're like, you know what? I don't care how long the song is. Time doesn't matter. Time is not important. Mm-mm. Only the song is important. If, and if it if it feels like at 10 minutes, it's it's not sounding long and it feels like it's good, it's good. And, and tracks 6, 7, and 8 are the sort of the, the creamy filling of the record. Yeah. So. You know, because we really go deep, deep, and we go into some spaces. And when when you're working with a song that that states its its rhythm and its parts in long form, three minutes can go by, and you feel like it's just starting. Mm-hmm. So it's really relative to the music and the pulse and the cycle of the music. The length pretty much is related to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned track six being ten. Ten and a half minutes. When we when we went to to open that up, it was I think eighteen minutes long. That's wow. Great. We actually had to shave it down because it it wouldn't have even fit on the record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, can any of these songs, or do you think any of these songs could be done live, and or will they be done live? Could they be done live? Absolutely, yes. Yes. Uh, will they be? be a lot of work? Uh huh. 
that you um, do. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced we could put together a good show. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it. Yeah, we're and we're talking about it. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> whether or not it'll happen remains to be seen, but it's uh, it, it's a tall order mm-hmm. to, to put something together like that because my opinion is that a lot of times this kind of music in concert can be kind of boring. Uh, no. Especially if you're watching someone up there, you know, turning knobs, you know, and they're not really doing anything. I'd want to put together a group of musicians to actually play the music right. as much as possible. To go to a show and see people banging on the drums that are creating the sound and microphones instead of huddling over a couple laptops is definitely what I'm interested in as well. Right. Hmm. So to do it right is a big effort. That's not to say we're not going to do it, but... Uh-huh. If, the, if you know of or if there's any promoters out there that want to fund a tour uh-huh. <laughs> and help us get some amazing musicians together, we are uh, open to the concept. <laughs> All right. Keep you in mind for that. Because, David, I saw you um, play in San Diego about a billion years ago. <laughs> seems <laughs> like. <laughs> that was in 96 or 97. Okay. For my first record, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was. That's the only concert I have ever played. Really? I've never played another concert other than that. We did do a little living room concert for Sleeping on the Edge of the World. Uh, no, we didn't. That was the living room concert was for Between Green and Blue. Yeah, it was right before that live show. Yeah, so I've never done huh. a a show. So you saw the show. Oh my gosh! We were there together. <laughs> you witnessed history. Uh, yeah. I did, and and it was in um in a IMAX theater. Yeah, it was the, what we have is the Ruben H. Fleet Space Theater, as they call it. It's a big dome, my next mm-hmm. theater, and I got to open up for Steve Roach, and I did almost all of the songs from Between Green and Blue, and had an ensemble of players. Yes. And had a bass player, percussionist, keyboardist, and drummer, and myself doing... Including the vocalist. And, and it was great. Mm-hmm. And I would love to do something like that again, but like John said, it is a tall order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, but I would love it if you did. So, <laughs> well, we'll definitely let you know. <laughs> put at least put Milwaukee on the map to stop by when you sure. do. <laughs> um, now, track five, as we move along, because I have to keep an eye on the time, uh, is uh, it's called "Into the Deep," and it is very cave-like. Uh huh. Yes. Um, and there's a there is a um, a sound in there, a little percussion sound that it's like a dry little dry sound that sounds like uh, you're actually tapping on a microphone yeah that was the the wave drum which is a it's a physical drum with the drum head on it that you play with your hands like a uh, like a djembe or a uh-huh. derabuka but it's electronic and i think we recorded a bunch of stuff and then sort of filtered it down so it wasn't um overpowering the presence of the song or something mm-hmm. i hate to sound so big about it <laughs> That's okay. (laughs) Okay, well, let's take a listen to um, Into the Deep on WMSE. That's the music of John Jenkins and David Helpling on WMSE from the new CD from Spotapec Re-Records. It's called Treasure. And uh, David and John are speaking with me from San Diego. And you are listening, by the way, to 91.7 WMSE Milwaukee, the voice of the Milwaukee School of Engineering. Um, now track six is very atmospheric and the sound, the, the song title itself, um, kind of demonstrates that not a, not a soul, not a sound. I I like that title a lot. Now, 
now we're getting to the part of the CD that is very um, ambient. How do you guys feel about about the labels that are put on music? I think we've gotten better where everything used to be called New Age or ambient. It was one or the other. But um, do you do you guys like those titles or? I mean, do you strive to create an ambient album or do you just classify yourself your stuff as John and David's music? We could we could talk for three hours just about that, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, the, um, personally, I'm not a fan of the New Age label. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that's kind of developed and, you know, back in the 80s. Yeah. New Age was more of a genre without the um the meanings that are attached to it these days yeah um you know you had the Wyndham hill section in the record store and that became the new age section pretty soon and, and that just kind of stuck mm-hmm. but I, I think labels do serve a purpose because they do kind of classify the music in a way that people who don't know what they're they're looking at you know can kind of at least get an idea of what it might sound like yeah um but i think so i think they can help as much as they hurt I don't know, David. It's difficult. I've never been a fan of the, the term New Age. I mean, here I am, and John and I are making very similar music, and together we make our own brand of music, but we're making instrumental music. We have no words. Um, a lot of it is electronic, mm-hmm. or but very cinematic and spacious, but yet you can't dance to it. Right. Not electronica. It's not ambient because it's melodic. It's not just... Space. Right. It's not just a wash. We have we're saying very particular things and have very bold statements. So I, I can't find a bin for us these days. Mm-hmm. And I think music is is something that there's always new labels being created and destroyed, and what used to be called something is now something else. Um, when you talk to people, do you say that Treasure is an ambient album? No, I wouldn't. In- what would you say that it is? Um, well, uh, my show is called Instrumental Saturdays, so, uh, I call it just an electronic instrumental album. That's probably where it belongs. That's yeah. Fitting. Yeah. Because, um, but, but I've seen, uh, you know, reviews and I've seen people talk about, uh, your music as being ambient and I don't like that. Well, we've had people call us new age, so. Yeah. <laughs> we just sort of roll with it and say, well, you know, we make the music and. Yeah, call it what you need to call it. I think ambient has kind of taken on a broader meaning. It has. You know, I hear things like David Sylvian being described as ambient. Right. And um, but then BT gets called ambient. Yeah, BT gets called ambient. (laughs) On the other side of that. Yeah, and if I had to choose between being ambient and new age, I would pick ambient any day in Mm -hmm. a heartbeat. Right. Yeah, because it's you're you're really not new age. (laughs) Right. But you're electronic. I think we're a lot closer to BT and Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. You know, or Tangerine Dream than we are to Stephen Halpern or, you know, a lot of the New Age music. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. Exactly. Well, um, well, why don't we go into, since we're talking, because this is such an atmospheric track, and I think this is why um, it gets the ambient label, because it's atmospheric. <laughs> what do you want to say about that? Oh, um, this, you know, like you said, we are getting to that part of the record is... Now you've gone into the deep. 
you've seen everything, um, you know, literally, and now you're going into a place where things are bigger and deeper, and it's time is time is supposed to be irrelevant as part of the record. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to just really listen to what's going on, and uh, I. I don't know how a lot of people approach ambient music, but I think that this track, Not a Soul, Not a Sound, has a lot of its own rewards to it. Right. So I think it would be interesting to see what your listeners think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's quite a journey, this one. I like it. Tell me uh, about Spotted Peccary. Well, actually, we're going to keep things down to a minimum because we got a lot of music to go through. But um, as far as... Uh, getting this CD out into the public, uh, where is Spotted Peccary available? Um, we're available at Amazon.com, of course. Um, Barnes & Noble and Borders and all the big stores like that, they may not necessarily have it in store, but they can order it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be on all their websites. Um, pretty much anywhere you buy music can get it doesn't mean that they carry it especially not these days mm-hmm. when shelf space is at a premium but um yeah we're out there we're distributed nationally and um actually around the world in a lot of different countries so okay and so also at spottedpeccary.com david and i have also set up our own website where we're selling um our music called deepexile.com mm-hmm. so there's quite a few places out there okay well we're going to take a listen to the frozen channel followed by Now More Than Ever on WMSC. That's the music of John Jenkins and David Helpling on WMSC from the CD Treasure. And uh, that particular track is uh, Now More Than Ever. And um, John and David are with me on the phone from San Diego. The ending of that song, you guys, makes me in my soundtrack of my brain um i think of a cathedral in the fog because it kind of like sounds like a foghorn a little bit oh yeah that's a nice vision that's yeah. a nice title too cathedral yeah. in the fog yeah <laughs> okay on the next cd yeah <laughs> um we've got two more tracks to play this uh next track that uh on the cd i think it's my favorite uh-huh. i i have to say i think it is my favorite i think it's my favorite too yeah it's it. I want it to be the soundtrack of my life. <laughs> wow! Because <laughs> it's it's um, it's real intense, little discordant, but lovely. It's you know it's got a just beautiful synth in there. Just the, you know that comes in. It's just beautiful, but it's really an intense song. It's it must have been a fun one to do. It was a blast to write and create, and in this type of format, the way this song is is real close to my heart and the kind of things I'm always after you know a lot of times we start out on a quest to to be after something Mm -hmm. and it ends up being something different sometimes better sometimes just different but this song really hits at the core of the kind of music I really get excited about Mm -hmm. Um, and to to have it happen here with John was a lot of fun yeah the the percussion is fabulous oh thanks Mm -hmm. yeah we had a lot of fun doing this one and I think hands down the feedback that we've gotten this one is hands down people's favorite. Yeah. Track nine. Some people mm-hmm. like track three, The Knowing, uh-huh. which I am also a big fan of, but I, I think overall this track has seemed to hit something with a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I just think it could have been longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
<laughs> well, we'll have to do an extended remixy thing. Oh, now that would be nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is yeah. This is really it's just a beautiful song throughout. Every time I hear it, it's just there's just everything about it I like. Great. So, um, okay, and um, the title does that mean anything this day forward? Well, if you're following the journey of the record, we just went down deep mm-hmm. into the the core of the record in these three more rather ambient tracks so this is sort of an emergence out of that part of the cave or that part of the journey and it's a it's a, to me the song title and the song itself is a bit of a commitment mm-hmm. you can look at it as after going through that experience of all of the record you know somehow you are changed or your perspective is changed from this day forward mm-hmm. Everyone yeah, probably have their own interpretation, and it falls perfectly in you know the in the sequence. It is really because you you come out of those two really atmospheric songs, two or the three actually, and um, and then this one is so bright. It's deep and and intense, but it's really bright. Yeah, it's kind of triumphant. Mm-hmm. The way I kind of describe it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, all right, my favorite song. <laughs> This day forward on WMSC. That's the music of John Jenkins and David Helpling on WMSC. My favorite song is called uh, This Day Forward from the new CD, Treasure. And um, after talking with you guys and and listening to the music uh, again this way with you guys on the phone, I think if, if you don't get more film work out of this, the two of you, there's got to be something really wrong with the filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because, nice. okay. yeah, because your music is so powerful and very, very visual that it, I, I can't imagine people not pounding on your doors. I would love that. Yeah. Um, I have really, really enjoyed talking with you both, though. It's, it's really been a lot of fun. Um, we have one last track to play, and it is um, the the final track, um, the first goodbye, which is an interesting title. Yeah, and it starts kind of darkly, and so the title uh, sort of suggests something sad. But then, what happens in the song? It brightens up. It brightens up. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and, and if. To just be technical about it, this is the only song that's in a major key on the record. Okay. And it has a completely different emotion than all the other ones. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 beautiful, but at the same time, it's it's sort of sad. Um, I think you'll just have to um, get your own interpretation. But at least it doesn't say the last goodbye. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, it's just a way of saying we'll be back. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that feeling that you get sometimes, um, I don't know, sometimes I'll meet somebody and I'll just get this very strong feeling that I'm going to see them again. Mm-hmm. Even if it's somebody that I just met occasionally, it's just a weird feeling. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of refers to that, you know, that, that, you know, we're not done. We're not done here. There's more to come. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes that can be very powerful. Yeah. So trying to convey that in musical terms is what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Well, I say there damn well better be more to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we better get to work then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Let's, and hope, let's hope we don't get called to, to score any films then. <laughs> That's true, but I'll go watch the movie then. Okay. <laughs> Um, but uh, and it, I think it's great that you both are still in San Diego because that will hopefully lead to you know more collaboration. Well, we work together often, and we're already working on new music. Mm-hmm. Don't know exactly when or how things yeah. happen, but uh, we're both excited about creating music. So. Yeah, John, does the business end of things get in your way? Um, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. It, it takes a lot of time and energy and not necessarily energy in the direction that I'd like to be putting energy, but mm-hmm. um, it's all stuff that has to get done. Yeah. If people are going to hear about the music and, and and discover it, so it's it's a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Um, I think and, it's about doing the right thing. Yeah. We could be selfish and just work on music all the time, and that's not the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We yep. do it to serve the music and help spread the word. And right, yeah, because you don't, you um, not only I mean, Spotted Peccary also is a. It, we were talking on, off air a little bit that it is also a distributor. That not only do you um, produce albums of your own artists, you know, you have your own artists on the labels, but you also sort of distribute like artists as well. Well, we we don't really distribute in the sense of a distributor. Mm-hmm. Like we don't deal directly with stores. We have a distributor that does that yeah. for us. But um, but we do offer other other labels that aren't just Spotted Peccary in our website in our online store. Mm-hmm. So we do make other music available to people. Um, music that we feel fits what we're doing and that our our listeners would appreciate. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to just you know not just spread the word for Spotted Peccary, but for Mm-hmm. A lot of different music that we believe in. Yeah, but you got a great lineup there. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe one of these shows I'll do a um, just a three-hour spot at Peccary show. Yeah, that would be great. There's enough music that I could do it. Sure. Sounds good. So, um, but we've got the last track to play, so we'll play that, and I'll come back to you guys, and we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, this is the first goodbye on WMSE. All right, I'm ready to start all over with track one now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the music of John Jenkins and David Helpling from the new CD, Treasure. It's out on Spotted Peccary Records and available on the uh, internet through spottedpeccary.com, through... Um, DeepExile.com. Deep, DeepExile.com. Amazon.com. Amazon, that's right. Um, you can visit... David's website, davidhelpling.com. Mm-hmm. You can visit my website, johnjenkins.com. <laughs> we got a lot of websites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'd say just, you know, visit the websites. We have a lot of good information coming up. Subscribe to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Because we're always updating those and putting stuff in there that you might not hear anywhere else. Yeah, I will definitely do that. I purposely avoided listening to anything uh, before doing the interview, just because I didn't want to be influenced by anything. Um, but I really appreciate you guys taking this time out. It's uh, I know it's a lot of time to spend on the phone, but you guys were troopers. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, so, it's been great, Mary. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you bet. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Stephen K., but I don't think he's quite ready yet. Hey, Stephen, are you ready? Hello. Hello, Stephen. It's your show now. Thank you, John and David. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. So there you go. There's the interview with Mary. Hope you enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun uh, doing that interview.
So that concludes this podcast. Thank you for listening. You can visit us online at deepexile.com. Send us an email to info at deepexile.com. Um, if you want to call us with an audio comment or a question, it's 858-926-5770. And uh, you can leave your message on there and maybe we'll play it on a future podcast. So thanks for listening. This is Deep Exile podcast number four, and we look forward to talking to you on number five. We'll see you next time. Thank you.